Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. The past few years have only served to highlight what allowing Westminster to make choices for us is like. So let's make the choices we want for our families and our communities right here in Scotland. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP. Now let's find out who's joining me on Scotland's Choice today. Well, hello, Drew. My name is Neil Richmond. I'm a member of the Irish Parliament, a TD for a constituency in Dublin. For the last two years, I've been my party spokesperson on European affairs. And prior to that, I had the joyful role of being the chairperson of the Irish Senate's Brexit Committee. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We're, we're very keen to get uh, different views on the Scotland's Choice podcast. And it's particularly interesting and valuable to have your insight uh, today, giving your view from uh, independent Ireland. I've got to ask you one question. We're recording this in the morning after there's been some uh, incredible uh, scenes at Westminster where we've had more than, I think now more than 10 ministers have resigned from uh, Boris Johnson's uh, government um, over you know, his behaviour and other matters. From the outside looking in, what do you make of what's going on at Westminster at the moment? I've had to spend a lot of time watching Westminster over the last six or so years, as you can appreciate, Drew. And it's like that Netflix series that keeps going for those additional series, it kind of with a bit of misdirection. It was fascinating at the start, but now it's getting a little bit tiresome. Um, and it's been pure chaos for the last number of weeks. And whilst you can smirk at it or whatever else, unfortunately, that chaos is starting to have a real impact on the livelihoods of the people that you and I represent every day in Parliament, in our respective parliaments. And it's gone from being funny to a bit of a bad joke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it must be very frustrating when you're trying to do uh, business, when you're trying to deal with uh, European affairs. And I want to come on to your role as European spokesperson in a second, but you know, for all the 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 fact that it might be amusing and, and kind of comical in some ways, it's a kind of tragic comedy that you're watching where you really don't want to see this kind of thing going on with the near neighbour, do you? No, not at all. And as I said, from a purely selfish point of view, we want to get back to doing a, an element of normal business. We don't take any joy in the sort of scenes that we see. And as good a TV as it makes and as easy a copy it is for our friends in the press, it's really quite damaging um, for all of us who just want normal relations. And given the, the state that Europe and the world is in at the moment and the really big, big challenges we're facing to have this sort of small little, I don't know, parlor games drama going on parallel, it's really quite worrying, to be honest. Well, as I said, you're European spokesperson for uh, Fianna Gael in the, in the Senate. How important has EU membership been to Ireland, even going back to when you uh, joined in the 70s? I would say Ireland's accession to the EC 50 years ago this coming January is the most important decision we've made uh, since independence. And I would argue that we were never truly independent until we actually joined the EC. For so long, our interest rate, our currency rate was just 
set by the Chancellor of Exchequer, even though we had gained independence in the 1920s, we still aped everything. About 55% of our exports went to Great Britain in 1972. Today, they're less than 10%. Mm-hmm. It allowed us to open up economically, not just to Europe, but to the world, because all of a sudden we were part of the world's largest economic bloc, a very powerful um, trade body negotiating with others that allowed us to get access on very, very favorable terms to markets only recently, really good terms with Canada and Japan, Mexico, Southeast Asia, much, much larger markets than what we'd experienced before. It gave us protection in dealing with large corporations to ensure that um, goods were up to a high standard, that our airways were kept clean, that our waterways were kept clean. And one thing, I suppose, in terms of the social progress, Ireland in the late 60s, 1970s, it was, it was a very conservative place. And it was a very conservative place. And and up until very recently, but that transformation, I would argue, fundamentally began when we joined the EC and Irish people had the opportunity to live and work and study across the continent. It wasn't just simply having to emigrate to Edinburgh or Glasgow or London or Birmingham or Manchester for economic necessity. It was also the opportunity to go to Erasmus in Madrid or Interrail or, you know, Irish builders who went and worked on the building site before the Barcelona Olympics or rebuilding Western Germany or whatever it was, but certainly the social progress that came. So I give the context, my, my late mother got married in 1971 to my father and she worked for a large bank. And the minute she got married, she was fired. With a thing called a marriage bar, a married woman, you could a married woman wasn't entitled to a job. In 1973, she had moved to a different bank at this stage, but she gave birth to my older brother, considerably older brother, and she was fired from that supposedly more progressive bank. So those two things, just as we're joining the EC, kind of defined Ireland pre-European accession. Of course, the marriage bar was removed in 1976, not because of direct European instruction, but due to the general social, um, rapid social development of Ireland. And Ireland of today is completely unrecognisable um, to the Ireland of the late 60s and 70s. You're listing a number of benefits there that uh, you've enjoyed as being a, a member of the European Union, you know, the free movement, the ability to study, travel, all those different things. Those are benefits that have been experienced here in Scotland. And it's, uh, it's like you can't put the genie back in the bottle when people experience those uh, freedoms, they, they become very important to them. And that was, I think, reflected in the vote that Scotland had over Brexit, where it voted overwhelmingly to remain Brexit's been, uh, you've been very vocal on Brexit, it's been a huge economic disaster, not least for uh, Scotland. Were were you surprised when you you saw people, particularly in England, uh, voting to leave the European Union? Unfortunately, I was. I Mm. never thought anyone could make such a daft decision, Um, (laughs) to be honest. I was like, Trump happened a couple of months later. Um, Like, I'd been following... European politics. I'd worked in the EU. I'd worked with British people in the EU for years prior. And I knew the sort of the ground had been prepared for that Eurosceptic shift. Um, one of the things that really struck me is that you politicians in London had spent 40 years using the EU as a very, very easy punching bag and then spent six weeks trying to convince people why they should stay in the EU. It was quite cynical and it's definitely a huge warning sign for those of us in the EU that you can't treat European membership for granted or some sort of plaything. But no, I was surprised by the decision. Uh, I wasn't surprised by the decision in Scotland a lot. Um, having visited Scotland many times and dealt with Scottish politicians at a European level, I completely understand that the vast majority of Scottish people, particularly their leaders, got the importance of Europe. But sadly, there is an outdated mentality in 
certain parts of England towards be it the UK's role in the world or indeed what the EU's role is that unfortunately allow, allowed Brexit to take root. But I, I still didn't think there would be that many people who'd actually go for this terrible decision because they were given every concrete reason to vote for Brexit, but none of them stood up to, to scrutiny. None of them were in actuality. There was no vision. It was your bills aren't collected, vote Brexit. Um, you had a bad night's sleep, vote Brexit. It'll solve everything. And to be honest, all it's done is create problems. It has, um, Ireland's by no means the smallest nation in the European Union, but as a relatively, a comparatively small nation in the EU, how has Ireland directly benefited as a result of Brexit? Yeah, we have benefited from Brexit in certain areas, but overall, we, we have suffered and overall we will, we stand to suffer a lot more when various grace periods and things like that expire. Um, the sectors where it's been quite clear we've benefited. Now, it's hard to measure and it'll take us a couple of years because the pandemic came in so quick and it masked, it masked a lot of the recovery in some places, but also we've seen that the pandemic has masked a lot of the damage that Brexit has caused to England and, and perhaps the wider, wider Britain. But I suppose there's, there's key sectors where we've seen about 6,000 financial services jobs directly migrate from London to Ireland um, because uh, companies want to um, maintain that full access to the single European market. But Ireland, it's an English speaking country, common law jurisdiction, um, fairly, fairly well-educated population, a large degree of people who go on to third level. We've also seen greater expanses from existing companies here. So we're a bit of a tech hub, a pharmaceuticals hub, medical sciences. It is the stepping stone for a lot of American com companies to get into the EU single market. We've also seen more people coming to Ireland. And unlike some people in the Brexit here movement, we love immigration in Ireland. Like the Scots, we're a migrant people. I lived abroad for two years. A scatter of my family um, live across the world, whatever it is. Um, I have aunties and uncles who've hopped back and forth between Cavan and Scotland based on seasons for, for centuries. You know, it's just very much in our DNA. And that's why when we see people coming to Ireland, they're coming because the job opportunities that were once in the UK simply aren't there because it's harder mm -hmm. for EU citizens to go to the EU. Freedom of movement is gone. Um, the UK is no longer uh, an attractive proposition. Sure, your big countries like, um, or your big cities like Edinburgh or Glasgow or London will still be attractive. But if you're going, somebody wants to work seasonally um, on farms, picking crops, or who wants to be a lorry driver or work in manufacturing or something like that, you're going to go like, why am I going to put up with all the hassle to get a job in Peterborough where I could just get my Ryanair flight to Ireland? And I don't have to fill in any forms. I'm entitled to work there. I'm given full protection. And they're literally asking people to come and paying them a good salary. We we want people to come. Mm -hmm. um, we have net, net inward migration. And we think that's one of the, the best things and one of the best, like the Scots, one of the best definitions of a, definitions of a successful country is that people actually want to move there. So mm -hmm. that's been definitely one of the big benefits. But the other thing is it's it's allowed us very much put ourselves um, front and centre in EU decision-making processes. Um, we've got absolute solidarity from the other EU member states in relation to dealing with the disaster that is Brexit. But you also see Irish ministers are now pulled in much more closely to the key decision-making roles because they see that Ireland's clearly committed to Europe. We're no longer that island behind an island that mm -hmm. we were when we joined the EC back in the 70s. We are a small 
Um, and we are small. It's not relatively small. We are small, you know, globally writing. But we're also a country that is part of the world's largest economic bloc, the most powerful political union, and just happen to be on the UN Security Council. And I think it's been really noticeable. You you mentioned that point about how, how Ireland's taken that centre stage. It's been really noticeable how the EU's really galvanised behind the uh, the needs of the people of both uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland, uh, particularly over the uh, over the issues around the the border and uh, about the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's uh, yeah, obviously, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a moment. It, it, I just wanted to ask you a wee bit about the kind of um, it, another aspect of it. We, the UK news tends to focus on the relationship between the UK and the EU, but what we don't hear a lot about over here is the relationship between the UK and Ireland. So I'm keen to uh, hear about the Irish uh, government's dealings with the UK as it's a position Scotland would obviously find itself in after independence. Do you, do you find the, the dealings are friendly? Are they obstructive, constructive? Has it changed at all more, or very much since Brexit? What are your general feelings on that? Yeah, it has changed. Let's not pretend like it hasn't. Um, if we think prior to Brexit, I suppose the, the relationship between Ireland and the UK kind of reached its zenith when you had the first royal visit to an independent Ireland with King, when Queen Elizabeth and then the reciprocal visit of President Higgins to Britain. That was when we saw real maturity, the sort of, and I'd be very critical, the sort of base level um, Brit bashing, for want of a better word, that far too many people in Ireland engaged in had kind of evaporated. You know, God Save the Queen was played at Croke Park before a rugby match and no one batted an eyelid. In fact, it was applauded because we were equals. Mm -hmm. Ireland and England were equals now. And we had a good relationship. The Good Friday Agreement wasn't perfect, but it was a heck of a lot better than anything that went before. Um, and you had the, the two governments working really, really closely, actually, on a European level. Um, and it was a basis for a good, formal, mature relationship. And we, we progressed things like in 2015, Ireland and the UK signed a memorandum, memorandum of understanding on defence. Um, we saw real sort of developments, the Irish diaspora, in not just in, 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 in England, but across Great Britain, really were kind of coming into their own. And it had changed, I suppose, shape compared to the Irish diaspora that had went over in the 50s or 60s. You know, they'd gone into different sectors. Um, but no, Brexit changed it massively. And what we certainly saw over the years of the negotiations is there was a much greater concern in European capitals about the border and life in Ireland than there was in London. Mm. And bear in mind that the British government is a co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. At this very moment, um, relationships are probably at their lowest point since the Good Friday Agreement was signed. We have British government ministers who will all be very pleasant, but then will simply go back on the word. We have a British government preparing to break international law. And there is this genuine misconception amongst too many people in Westminster, obviously yourself and your colleagues wouldn't be counted in that, Drew. They don't get that we watch BBC. Yeah. You know, we read British papers. We're extremely heavily exposed to what's going on in, in the UK. And that's not just people in Ireland, that's across the EU. Mm -hmm. So when you hear some of the speeches that are made by some of the particularly interesting, I'll use a polite word, characters in the ERG or in the back benches, um, but not even those insulting when you might be insulting might be a better term, but I like your diplomacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but even some of the comments from cabinet ministers, hmm. like you have the attorney general, the secretary of state for Northern Ireland, the foreign secretary and the previous foreign secretary and the minister of state for Northern Ireland going out and blatantly saying things that are wrong. Hmm. 
you know, Suella Braverman going on and saying that Northern Ireland's economy is tanking because the protocol when it's the it's the highest performing region in the UK, you know, that kind of gets yeah. tough to take now because we do actually have an absolutely brilliant collection of diplomats, both in London um, and from Ireland's point of view, as well as our consul generals in Edinburgh, Cardiff and Manchester. But also on the British side, we have diplomats and officials who've invested their entire careers in the relationship and were there at really difficult points in the north in particular. And they're being led politically by a government at the moment that represents the very worst um, of British stereotypes. And that as a result has driven down the relationship to a very, very bad place. The thing is, there's structurally scope for a really good relationship. Ireland could be the UK's closest and best friend in the EU. And we have things bilaterally that no other EU member state has through the, the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. But rather than embracing that, we have a British government that is facilitating the collapse of those institutions and you see ministers who spent most of their previous political career um, rubbishing the Good Friday Agreements, pretending like they're now acting in the interests when, of the Good Friday Agreement when they're, when they're clearly not. It, it, it's interesting you should say that. When uh, the Brexit result uh, came out, the Scottish government tried to engage with the UK government by bringing out a document called Scotland's Place in Europe, which said, look, if you, in our view, if you have to do this stupid thing, don't do it this stupid way, um, and put forward suggestions for how Scotland might be able to uh, cope better with its unique needs. Um, that, that document wasn't even uh, you know, given any uh, credence at all. There was no discussion or anything like that. And, and what you were saying there about the possible opportunities, which actually Northern Ireland has been uh, gaining because it's been in this uh, weird position of being stuck between their dogma and the, the agreement. It's actually been, uh, as you say, gaining from that just now. That's something that could have been applied to Scotland, but didn't happen. And, and so it's really interesting to hear your view on that. And I just want to ask you about, you know, the, both pre-Brexit and post-Brexit. As a, you've described it as a small independent country um, in close proximity to the UK. If a referendum in Ireland was held tomorrow on rejoining the UK, how do you think that would actually go? <laughs> this is something, sometimes it's put out by sheer divilment um, by some of my unionist friends in Northern Ireland. They are friends, let's be frank. We all have to have the ability to disagree without being disagreeable the whole time. Some of them aren't my friends, but that's a different story altogether. And they put it forward going like, you know, I believe in a United Ireland within the UK. And and you kind of smile and nod and you go, oh, well, good one. Um, <laughs> but then you actually genuinely get English MPs who, who don't understand why we wouldn't want to join the UK. Mm. And it was actually, I remember, put on Radio 4 to our Minister of European Affairs as a serious solution to the problems that Brexit was creating. Well, why wouldn't you just leave the EU too? And like, like I think 83% of Irish people at the moment are in favour of remaining in the EU. Mm -hmm. I would be shocked if we got 7% of people saying we should rejoin the UK. Mm -hmm. And bear in mind, we have 300,000 British citizens living in the state. Mm -hmm. I think even the vast majority of them accept that there is no reason for Ireland to rejoin the UK. And to be honest, we didn't join in the first place, as you know, it was an act of union. We didn't really have much say in the process. So <laughs> I say I say we was 200 years before I was born or 300 years, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, no, I think that would be a spectacular, um, the, what the Good Friday Agreement passed by 90% in, in this state. So I'd imagine you'd be looking at a similar number. 
And you've got thousands upon thousands of new uh, Irish passport holders, and I think hundreds of MPs, if I'm not <laughs> mistaken, oh, as well. Over 300 MPs. Yeah. And um, a really good friend, I mean, he really is a close friend, but he's from Northern Ireland originally, from a very strong unionist background, and very sheepishly, a couple of years ago, I need to get an Irish passport. I said, great, yeah, do you want the form? I also needed to be witnessed by an office holder. And I said, well, I'm more than happy to witness it, but I'm going to fill it in in Irish. <laughs> anyway, he, 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 he still, he always cheered for Ireland in rugby, but I haven't quite got him being sensible for soccer just yet. But anyway. It, I just want to ask you, Neil, it, after gaining independence, a very different circumstances, Ireland had to overcome all the challenges that we are uh, told it would be impossible for uh, Scotland to overcome it. Obviously, these are also very different times in Ireland. We're starting from a very different position, really having to do everything from scratch. Uh, one of these is, of course, is the issue of which currency to use. Do you think it's a bit of a red herring to spend so much time worrying about this when uh, countries such as Ireland have already shown that whilst there might be some real challenges associated with it, these are uh, not... Uh, insurmountable. Uh, Ireland kept the pound sterling as its currency for the first six years following independence before creating the, the put and then um, you know, uh, pegging that to sterling before eventually joining the euro. What, what are your thoughts on the whole currency question that we get thrown about here in Scotland? Yeah, I suppose the other thing you have to remember when Ireland gained its independence, currency was the last thing that we were concerned about six months within independence having had just had a war of independence we then had a civil war uh, and we're at a time in europe where we have totalitarian regimes be it in communist russia soviet union russia you know mussolini's italy you know it's not exactly not to mention comparable the great, not to mention the great depression yeah the great things. depression and yeah. we were not in a strong economic position like when independence came, the economic powerhouse in our island wasn't Dublin. It was it was very much Belfast. It was the shipbuilding industry, the linen industry, um, and you know the far more it's kind of, it, the far more economically successful bit was the north. We had a far poorer bit. There was only you know two generations out from a, a famine where a million people died. Um, so yeah, there was challenges with currency. They were surmountable. But I think a far more, I suppose, relevant comparison was when we when we entered the euro. Um, that maybe took two days of adjustment. Mm -hmm. You know, all, that, all of a sudden, you know, months and months of campaigns and PR were put in that, you know, a euro is worth one pound 20, you know, one pound, a euro, one euro 27 cent is one old punt or pound as we call it. Um, literally, once you start using it, you, you, you adjusted quickly. And the preparatory work prior to that was maybe two, four, two to four years to, at two different stages. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take long. I don't think this is the big issue for any country um, currency. Currency is so much more mobile now compared to what it once was. Talk about the rise of Bitcoin, you talk about, we're so used to exchanging currencies now. I actually looked at my desk drawer the other day and I have three different types of currency. I have Northern Irish, Scottish and English sterling stuck in my desk from a from recent visits. Um, you know, and it just kind of goes that, you know, we do everything electronically now, largely pounds and pound notes and coins are going it's not the big issue and i think um i can say this and you can say don't say it neil but i think joining the euro has been particularly beneficial to ireland and i think that's for any country that aspires to join the eu whilst not the biggest focus i think there should be no fear of joining the eu uh, the euro and i think it should be recognized that this is it's actually one of the big the big pluses and gains as well 
it's interesting to to hear you say that about uh, joining the the euro and also about you know the fact that uh, money has become uh, you know so much more borderless. I mean, when you travel in Europe, you're talking about the different currency used, but I bet most of the time you're tapping your card or phone or uh, whatever, and then just uh, you know accepting what comes back on the statement later, unless there's something wrong with it. And and the days, Drew, of worried about francs and peseta and Deutschmarks are long gone. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I have to travel to Spain next week for work, which is a lovely place to be going. And I don't need to worry about currency. I don't need a visa to go. Uh, if I, God forbid, I get sick, I just go with my e, e, EHIC card and I'm straight into hospital. Like it's seamless. And the currency is just an extension of that single market and Eurozone. And it makes life a lot easier. But of course, it's worth mentioning in passing, there are countries that are members of the European Union that are still uh, you know, using their own currencies like Romania, um, using its own currency, Sweden yeah. is using its own and, currency. And it's interesting for, for different reasons. So Croatia are about to join, you know, Croatia have joined the euro. Um, Sweden and Denmark don't want to join the euro for kind of similar reasons why um, the UK never didn't. Romania is a little bit different, but, you know, there's plenty of, I think, the, I think seven of the 27 member states don't use the euro. And of those seven, five have no immediate aspiration to switch over either. Mm-hmm. People, uh, just to move on to a slightly different mm. matter, people often talk about Scotland losing its uh, seat on uh, some key organisations as a result of leaving the UK. And I'll say this, we are uh, scaremongering about how this would diminish, somehow diminish Scotland's role in the world stage. But I think with your comments earlier about what the UK government have done to diminish their own role in the world stage, I think that's quite a stretch. But ha- the question I want to ask is, has that been the, the case with Ireland? No, we've got seats on the world stage. We've gone from being a province of one country to being a country, a state on our own that's seen as a global equal. Um, You know, people don't ask me, is my capital London? They know my capital is Dublin. Um, It's Ireland that is on the UN Security Council in our own right at the moment for a rotating period. It's Ireland that had the presidency of the European Union in 2013. Um, It's Irish peacekeepers under UN blue berets with an Irish tricolor flash on their arm who are in Mali or the Golan Heights or in Kosovo or in Cyprus. Um, it gives us a huge ability to, to not just have our own seat at the table in large organizations. And bear in mind, when the G7 meets or the G20 meets, um, yes, the UK is a seat, but the, the EU is an ex officio member. So when I see the G7 family photo last week, you know, I'm pretty happy that Ursula von der Leyen is there representing me and not Boris Johnson. Um, and it is definitely quite reassuring to see that. And certainly we have a situation as an independent country, one of the few that have the guaranteed audience with the president of the United States every year for St. Patrick's Day. Every year we send about 30 to 40 politicians on trade missions. We have, I think Edinburgh Castle was definitely, Stirling Bridge have been lit up in green to mark our national holiday around the world. Um, that wouldn't be happening if we were still in the UK. And I know that's very emotive lighting up but we have a full seat at every organization that we're a member of we join the organizations that suit us again we are a small country but we consistently punch above our weight even in the eu we have had two secretary generals of the european commission in the last two decades um you know really really important people we have a commissioner that sits at the table of um 
of the Conference of European Commissioners, it's currently Mairead McGuinness. She's looking after financial services, which is really important for Ireland, but it's really important for all of Europe. Prior to that, the Agriculture Committee Commissioner was Irish as well. Pretty important for us too, even though I'm very much an urban suburban politician in terms of the constituency I represent. Um, as I said, we only got true independence when we joined the EU, but the EEC as it was, but our independence has grown exponentially. Uh, as the decades have moved on, and we were starting from a very, very low basis when we achieved it. Yeah, Neil, it would be um, it would be wrong of me to invite you onto a podcast about uh, Scotland's constitution and uh, set up, not ask you about um, the situation in Ireland. You, you're a passionate advocate of Irish reunification. First of all, do you, do you think this is likely to happen? And what's the process for achieving this and do you do you see any parallels between this movement and the Scottish independence movement well I know that we'll be following what happens in Scotland extremely closely uh, over the next I suppose 15 months till till next autumn 2023 when your next referendum be held and we followed the, the last referendum really closely mm-hmm. um, and it'll be particularly of interest this time for many people like myself who have an Ulster Scots ancestry and traditionally, a lot of them would have fallen into the unionist camp in Northern Ireland, but more and more find themselves in the, the constitutional other. And we see the Alliance Party thriving in Northern Ireland um, because Brexit has changed everything when it comes to Irish unity for a long time. And my party was as guilty of, as well as the others that the status quo was accepted. And whilst we all said we aspired to Irish unity, we didn't necessarily think it was a pressing need. And that was reflected in lots of different ways. And we certainly utterly rejected those who wanted to achieve unity by violent means. Um, Brexit's changed that. And we now have one and a half million people in Northern Ireland who've had their European citizenship robbed from them. We have people going that the way Northern Ireland has been treated in, in relation to the protocol and the backstop going like, well, is it is it Dublin or London who cares more about our concerns? Is it you know, who's putting more time into the relationship? Um, and, you know, we're not looking to beat the drum. The process drew as it stands. And it's it's all within the, you know, aspiring to Irish unity is perfectly acceptable. Um, in fact, it's in, allowed for within the Good Friday Agreement. Um, the Good Friday Agreement isn't necessarily the retention of the status quo. Um, but it's a reflective that if the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, the British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland decides that, a border poll is required and a border poll has um, support to be passed, then he or she will call a border poll. Um, so one of the things that my party leader, the Tónis de Lier Varkar, has been very vocal about over the last couple of weeks is, you know, what is that specific criteria? You know, and someone said, well, the, the Secretary needs to, to read the runes. And I was like, well, this isn't ancient Greece. What do they actually need to do? Is this based on opinion polls? Is it based on election results to the assembly or to to Westminster? Um, And we look at the last um, assembly election in Northern Ireland, unionism has um, declined at every election since 1998. Um, Nationalism has kind of stagnated to be fair, over the last two cycles, it was growing and it stagnated, but the other is growing massively. The people who don't necessarily, and the Alliance Party are quite clear, they'll take a position maybe take a position when a border poll is called and if one is called it would be it'll be an open vote um which is their entitlement and i respect that too to be fair um but we look at just how things are changing um and the the approach the british government has been taking to the good friday agreement to the institutions 
thereof. And it's quite disappointing. And I suppose the parallel in Scotland is um, the requirement for the British government to um, assent a, a referendum to be held to be legally binding. You know, we are still waiting on a British government minister to declare whether or not if a referendum could be held. Um, the other parallels is it's talking about the myth busting. And you talked about currency earlier. A lot of people say, well, we, we in the, the Republic could never afford Northern Ireland. Um, but that kind of completely, it just takes the simplistic figure of the transfer of is about nine billion pounds from London, from Westminster to Belfast every year without going into, okay, well, let's let's break that apart. Let's talk about what does that actually constitute? Well, part of that is Northern Ireland's uh, contribution to um per population contribution to British defence spending. Well, they're not going to be contributing that as part of an independent unified Ireland. Mm. That takes out a good chunk already. Then it's down to pensions contributions. Um, and it, you can whittle that figure down from nine, bil- 9 billion to about 3 billion very, very quickly. And the other thing is, if you, you look at the, I suppose the opportunities that Unity presents from a very strict economic point of view, we're a relatively small nation. Mm. We're an island population of just over 7 million. Mm. Um, but yet we have agencies working in some degrees against each other in terms of economic development. We have Enterprise Ireland and the IDA in the South, and then we've Invest NI in the North. And if you have two areas either side of the border competing for investment, you know, rather than the two of them coming together. Because one of the, the great missed opportunities um, that Brexit has presented is, is the, the strengthening, sorry, of the all-Ireland economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely so many areas. We have the Dublin-Belfast corridor where Northern Ireland's economy could, could be improved so much quicker. Um, but equally, I don't aspire in a United Ireland just for Northern Ireland to join what we have in the Republic today. I want a new Ireland. I want a better Ireland. I want a different education system, a different health system, um, a far more progressive approach to perhaps some of our social rights and laws for much more continental. But equally, I want people who we would call them unionists today, like yourself, who will be in an independent Ireland, be British. I want them to know that their British citizenship will be retained. Not only will it be retained, but it will be respected and they will enjoy all the rights that they have today in a united Ireland. In fact, they'll probably get some more rights. Mm-hmm. And rather than having, you know, a handful of MPs elected from Northern Ireland going into a chamber in Westminster, you have a very sizable amount of TDs or whatever we'll call them from what was Northern Ireland coming into Parliament in a united Ireland and having a real say and sway over the decisions that affect them. So rather than taking by edict so many decisions made in in London, um, they actually get to have that shape. And that particularly comes into the economic discussion, which I'm sure is a conversation that is held in every kitchen table in Scotland as well. But Neil, it's been fascinating having you on the podcast today. The the last question we usually ask our guests is which policy we'd like to create in Scotland after independence with the extra powers that we've had. But I'd like to ask you, something slightly different, which is, which successful Irish policy do you think that an independent Scotland should adopt after independence? Join the EU as soon as you can. <laughs> I think that's uh, pretty straightforward. Oh, on that note, um, I'd like to uh, thank you very much, uh, Neil Richmond, for joining me uh, on the uh, Scotland's Choice podcast uh, for this episode, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for listening to Scotland's Choice. You can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot and you can watch the full-length videos on YouTube. 
If you can share this podcast and our videos, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm-hmm.